Life can always use more Cedar Point. And right now, you can get more Cedar Point for less with the Fun Day Bundle. Each bundle saves you more than 35% on admission, parking, and dining for one low price. That means more coasters like Steel Vengeance and Millennium Force, and even more excitement with the Cedar Point Parade and Spectacular. But you better hurry because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All hit radio. Welcome to the X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and we're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you would like to um, just uh, check us out, it's very simple, www.xzbn.net, and that will give you all the other fine programming that is available to you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network. My guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Jonathan Whitcomb. He is a cryptozoologist. Now, while viewing an expedition video by Paul Nation, he noticed a high level of credibility in the testimonies of eyewitnesses of what is called the reopen of Yumboy Island in Papua New Guinea. He then began and became involved in living pterosaur investigations, exploring the part of Yumboy Island in 2004. Joining me now to tell us more about this fascinating story is Jonathan Whitcomb. And Jonathan, welcome to the X-Zone. Oh, thank you very much, Rob. Great to be here. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you became involved in investigating these flying reptiles. Yes, well, um, around 2003, I learned about sighting, sighting reports in South America. And as I, I followed up on that, tried to get information, I got in mm-hmm. touch with Pollination of, of Texas. And he had been there on the expedition uh, and, uh, and and more than once, in fact, and that's how I got fascinated. I was a forensic videographer, specializing in um, uh, legal video for attorney firms in Southern California, mostly. And I, I recognized that these these natives were telling the truth. Um, they weren't making up fantastic stories; they're just saying what they saw. And um, 
so I got fascinated, and I eventually became so involved that I led my own expedition the next year in 2004. What was the the truth that the natives were telling you that, you know, you recognized as a professional videographer, forensic videographer, that they were telling the truth, but what was it that they saw, and what was the truth that they were telling you? Well, part of it was that they were, they were they led me to believe that they were very honest, was that there was no fantastic stories. They weren't reciting their legends or mm-hmm. their their, um, their superstitions. They just said, like, well, I saw this light fly at night, you know, and it was going like that. We call it a rope, you know, and most of them were like that. And then there was an exception where you have somebody that actually sees something that uh, could have been a terrorist, and that exception was a, a teenage boy named um, Gideon Coral, who was very fortunate to be able to to interview uh, in 2004 when I was exploring. So what was it that these natives saw at night? Well, it's a glow. It generally lasts about maybe five, six seconds mm-hmm. around then, that that time. And it goes from either one mountain to another or from a mountain to the coast or back again. Right. And I got some statistics when I came back. I wrote a scientific paper in a peer-reviewed journal. And it showed that there is not a huge, strong evidence, but it does suggest that since the um, the light is seen more going from a mountain to the reefs early in the, at night, and then late at night is seen more often going from the coast inland toward the mountains, it does suggest that it is a a flying creature that is uh, eating fish or other seafood on the reefs at night. What does this flying creature look like? Well, um, when I interviewed uh, Gideon, he said it was had a, uh, a very long tail. I, I, I asked him, and I was videotaping this while I was doing it, I asked him how long is the tail, and he looked away from me down at the ground, looked back and forth at the ground, uh, as if he was trying to imagine what it was like. And then he looked right back at me, he looked straight in my eyes and said, seven meter, which is seven meters and 23 feet. And... Um, he had no hesitancy in that. So this is a very large creature that they have in Ropen, in the, on Umbo Island. So have you yourself ever seen um, one of these creatures? Uh, up until now, I've never had a, you know, a sighting that was clear enough that I could say it was probably a living terrorist, or I have seen a couple things uh, over the years that uh, suggest the possibility, but I don't mention them much because... There's just too much possibility of them being other things. But I, I do interview people from all over the world, and mm-hmm. that's where I'm, I get my conviction that these are real animals. There's no hoaxing involved or misidentifications. Have you ever seen any skeletal remains or any fossils to further collaborate the claims of these people who say they have actually seen one of these uh, reptiles, dinosaurs? No, I haven't uh, seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. I have... Um, analyzed uh, for some time, uh, especially last year, uh, a photograph uh, that appears to be around the middle of the 19th century, or the 1860s, 1870s, of an apparent pterosaur, very large. <coughs> and I did an analysis um, in conjunction with analysis done by a, a, a physicist in California, and we both uh, independently concluded that this, the photograph is genuine. Have any of the members of the established scientific community ever given you a 
a um, verification that this is actually a prehistoric or a creature that has yet to been discovered. We seem to be a ways away from that. This is still well within the boundaries of cryptozoology. Uh, we rely mainly on eyewitnesses. We have scientists who not only support us, mm-hmm. but they actually have witnessed it occasionally. One man in uh, Perth, Australia, who had an incredible sighting. He's in the sci- he was working in the scientific field at the time. He's retired now, I'm sure. Right. But that was in 1997 in Perth, Australia. And uh, we have um, more recent sightings uh, where the, 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 people, the eyewitnesses are, are credible, either working in science or, or, or in uh, professional positions where they wouldn't dare um, perpetrate a hoax, how they could injure their professional life. Here we are in the year 2018 with all this modern technology at our fingertips. Are there any videos of this flying reptile? Are there any photos, recent photos? Well, yeah, we have we have a, a video footage in North Carolina from Raleigh, North Carolina, from uh, just uh, last year. But unfortunately, was, uh, I suspect it was probably a real pterosaur, but unfortunately it was taken by a... Um, by a lady who's uh, who's working in the veterinary field, and she was in a bus, uh, mm-hmm. and it was going the wrong way, and it's just it's too far away to really say. It's not something we can really say is very solid evidence sure. for it because it's just too not good enough. I, I know for a fact there are model and hobby shops that were selling uh, model pterodactyl kits that actually flew remote control. So yeah, is there... we always have to be aware of that. Yeah. Be, be careful. Uh, the thing is, the sighting reports in general, mm-hmm. they go back into the years and decades and centuries in a way that, that leads us just to determine that there's uh, not too much misidentification from uh, remote control. I mean, in, in, if you go to individual sighting report, of course, it's definitely you have to look at each sighting report in itself and see what what's uh, credibility in terms of um, honesty, credibility, and uh, misidentification credibility. Those are two different issues in credibility. But in general, the sightings go back in history for, uh, in a way that suggests that they're really, in general, these are real animals. For example, um, we go right back for, to uh, 1944 and, and um, on the mainland of New Guinea mm-hmm. uh, where Dwayne Hodgkinson was a soldier for the American forces, uh, and his description of this huge uh, pterodactyl, as he called it, and obviously in 1944 there would be no, um, you know, model pterodactyl flying around that's the size of an airplane, you know. How about a kite? Kite, well, uh, not where he was in the jungle in a remote remote area. Nobody would be flying a kite the size of a Piper Tri-Pacer airplane. But you mean in general, the yeah. situation? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that, that's a possibility for a, a particular sighting, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But the general overview of what happens with the sighting suggests that these are not uh, that kind of uh, that kind of sighting. For example, well, let's just give a few examples. In Antwerp, Ohio, a few years ago, uh, the eyewitness uh, said he saw the it looked like a pterodactyl two years in a row in the middle of the summer both times, flying over the Mal- Maumee River in Antwerp, Ohio. 
and both uh, both times, at least one time especially, he saw it chasing uh, sparrows or some other bird, he called them sparrows, that flew over the, the bridge. And he saw one time this um, pterodactyl, as he called it, with a long tail, actually catch the sparrow hmm. in its mouth while it flew over the bridge. That's obviously not a kite. Or a All right, Jonathan, stand by. We've got to take a commercial break. Exonation. Jonathan Whitcomb is our guest of this hour. His website is www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. And on the Exxon Channel on Simul TV. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Back everyone, this is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. If you'd like to send me an email, Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com. And for all the programming available to you 24 7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Our guest this hour is cryptozoologist and author Jonathan Whitcomb. Um, Jonathan, with all the let me back up a minute here. So, the sightings of these. Of these um, reptiles, flying reptiles, or pterosaurs, are seen worldwide. Yes, I've I've interviewed um, eyewitnesses from five continents directly. You know, the eyewitnesses mm-hmm. themselves. I'm not dealing with usually with indirect kind of things. I communicate with eyewitnesses directly, and um, there's certain things that that they fall into place with uh, correlating with each other that are from eyewitnesses in different, con- different countries, different cultures, different languages, different belief systems and, and backgrounds that uh, correlate. And that's convinced me for sure that these are real animals. What kind of correlation, sir? Well, for example, I'll give you a common type, which is seen worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, featherless flying creature, Usually fairly large, uh, long tail, often described with a, a flange at the end of the tail. I, they use terms like diamond shape or, or triangle mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. It's something at the end of the tail. And um, uh, sometimes they describe a long neck. Sometimes they describe a particular type of head crest, and this is falls into place a number of times. We're sort of like a long cone sticking out parallel to the beak, but sticking out the opposite direction behind the, the head. Now, pterosaur fossils have a great variety of head crests. So um, what we have here is a survival of uh, a particular type of pterosaur that's very specific, and it's just um, apparently dominating a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways that, that where pterosaurs live around the world. How come we don't hear any about this in the media, sir? Well, we do sometimes. Uh, the problem we have in Western countries, you have to differentiate, you know, between different countries and different cultures. In the West, like the United States, Canada, and, and um, many European countries. But um, 
the problem is it's just taken for granted that all all these type of animals became extinct many many millions of years ago, and this has been in our culture for so long for generations. I mean, I could show you things from a newspaper article in the late 19th century where they have several newspapers reporting a sighting in California, for example. And you can see that the cultural bias against that possibility of living pterodactyls is still there in at least one of those newspaper accounts. But we still have some occasional newspapers and, and other reports in the media. So am I to understand, sir, that there are fossils of the pterosaurs? Well, there are many fossils of pterosaurs. It's just that they don't have... Um, uh, we don't have any that I know of that are precisely like this I in see. terms of it's a ramp rhynchoid pterosaur with a cone-like head crest that grows very large. We have some ramp rhynchoid pterosaurs, long-tailed pterosaurs, that do get large, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have this type of head crest. And we have head crests in some pterosaurs that are like what is reported commonly, except they're not ramp rhynchoids or a different type. So it's it's an unusual kind of a, what we call the ropen a modern ram pterosaur, a long-tailed pterosaur. The ropen is unusual from the perspective of a paleontologist who just knows about it from fossils. They think it's just, it's just too weird because it doesn't fit the fossils that they know so far. That doesn't mean that we won't have any discoveries in the future that, mm -hmm. are, that, are, that are show us uh, uh, this type of animal and fossils. It's just that right now, as far as I know, we don't have fossils exactly like this. So... It would, it would seem that the pterosaur falls in the same category as the Loch Ness Monster, a lot of, uh, you know, sightings, yeah. and, and Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah I believe so. I, 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 don't, I haven't studied the, as much about the Loch Ness. I've been there before when mm -hmm. I was young, but haven't studied it recently. I, I know there are a lot more sightings that I've heard of than are, than are commonly reported in the media from Loch Ness, so... Well, yeah, I, I can understand that because, you know, the Loch Ness Monster is a cash cow for the uh, Loch Ness area. So, of course, they'd want to keep the the uh, the sightings in the news to ramp up, you know, tourism. Yeah, but I, what I mean is whenever you have a documentary, for example, that shows a Loch Ness creature, mm -hmm. you only have a tiny fraction of the, the eyewitness account. Right. A tiny fraction, yeah. Um, are there any references that you're aware of of the pterosaur in mythology? Well, yeah, it goes back into dragons. A few centuries ago, the, the word pterosaur didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It wasn't part of our language or any other languages. Uh, it came about um, about the time as the American Revolution or late 1700s, uh, as I recall. And uh, people before them were just called flying uh, featherless uh, long-tailed uh, creatures, they call them dragons, and they have, of course, that's an English word, they sure. have whatever, depending on what language you're dealing with, but basically we think of those as being dragon legends. So are you, are you saying, sir, or are you speculating, are you putting up the hypothesis that the, the legend of dragons may, of flying dragons may actually be a fact? There's, I don't. I know that there's some of them, of course, are fictional, and, mm -hmm. and uh, when you have a, you know, a real account of an actual event, and then things happen in, over a period of time, and things are are changed in the in the records. Um, so you do have uh, uh, accounts that, w in a present form, would be have obvious uh, 
fictional characteristics in them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that everything about it was fictional right. you know, at the time it happened to you. Why isn't there more of a push by the members of the scientific community to do more expeditions in order to find the pterosaur? Well, you have to look at how that could take place, and you see there's a huge problems. Um, it has to start with a person, you know, not just an organization that suddenly mm-hmm. a university decides to go on a road search for living pterosaurs. It has to start with a, an individual, and when you do that, you, what are you going to do? Uh, one professor at the university going to say, oh, let's go out and look for living pterosaurs. How is he going to do that? How can he promote that? It's, uh, well, wouldn't he be able to promote it if, in fact, he did have proof? Yeah, but they, generally the, the, the problems with um, traditional um, culture in mm-hmm. universities, for example, is if you try something really weird that uh, it's not going to be funded. Funding goes... Everyone is howling about Paws of Fury. It's the most fun comedy of the summer. I am your father. What? No, I'm not. <laughs> Michael Sarah. It's showtime. And Samuel L. Jackson. What the mother-father kind of spaniel's going on here? Paws of Fury. Only in theaters July 15th. Free PG. ...to things which are basically already accepted... Uh, to a great level. In other words, it's something that you, if you, you make a documentary, you know, that's um, that wants you, you want to get funding for it, mm-hmm. it has to be something that that's already very uh, popular in the belief systems of, of of everybody involved. But doesn't that come with getting the information out there and allowing the public to make up their own mind? Well, I think that definitely that's what I'm trying to do for years. Mm-hmm. I've been working on this for 15 years and. My associates and I have been doing different things, trying different things, but um, it's a very difficult, challenging situation. We, um, uh, eyewitnesses, for example, I've learned over the years, and especially recent years, that the vast majority of eyewitnesses these creatures, they never contact me. For example, I, I, um, there are very few exceptions. For example, I, I get an eyewitness report, say, from... Um, from back east in the United States, and uh, the person tells me about this sighting they had of a pterosaur, and they tell me, oh, I mentioned it to, to my friend or relative, and they've seen it too, or they know somebody that's seen it. Well, none of those other people ever get in touch with me. I, I know that because of the detail. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm only getting a tiny fraction of um, the actual sightings. And so it's people, and after I forgot your original question to let into that, but um, it's, it's a challenging situation. No, my, my, my question was that would it not be more advantageous to have evidence and have proof, and would it not be to the, yeah. to the credit or to the likelihood of getting funding if the public was made more aware of this? It seems like you're in a catch-22 situation. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, we um, we do have a Rex uh, uh, Epayapi. He's a native from Papua New Guinea. He's now on an expedition on Umboy Island, the same place where I was mm-hmm. years ago. And he's with has a camera. He has fun. He originally did have fun. He's money's run out by now. He's been there for many weeks, and it's just challenging situation. They have a it's a long story, but basically, there uh, 
when I left Amboy in 2004 to return to the United States, I came to a complete uh, realization that that island only has one large ropen that is a permanent uh, inhabitant of the island. In other words, um, a ropen has established its territory, and whatever other creatures of that species come to the island, it's generally more temporary for mating or for challenging the, the ropen that's there. So anybody going to Rumboy, um, even if they're there for many weeks, mm-hmm. and even months, it's very difficult to find that particular animal in a, the deep jungles. And they're nocturnal animals. You know, they don't come out in the daytime in, in generally. It's All right. very challenging. All right, stand by, Jonathan. You and I have to take our news break. Exonation, Jonathan Whitcomb is our special guest. His website is www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. And... Um, we're talking about uh, Jonathan's scientific paper, Reports of Living Pterosaurs in the Southwest Pacific, which was published in Creation Research Society's Quarterly, Volume 45, Number 3. Are you a skeptic or are you a believer? Send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com, and Jonathan and I will be back on the other side of the spring. Don't go away. Jonathan Whitcomb is our special guest this hour, Exxon Nation. He is an American writer, cryptozoologist, and we're talking about pterosaurs in America this hour here in the Exxon. First of all, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, where in the world are the most sightings of the pterosaurs taking place? That's an excellent question, and it's a little, little bit complicated. Okay. <clears throat> the... Um by far the greatest number of reports that come to me directly from eyewitnesses, they come mm-hmm. from the United States, generally the 48 contiguous states of the United States. Um, but there's a reason for that that people might not be aware of. Um, my web pages are in English, mostly. I have other languages, mostly in English. And Americans are, are very commonly, they do searches online, and they everybody has almost has a computer and goes online. So the reason we get more reports from the United States is not that that's where the animals live, but that's where people live who have access to find me and find out that other people have sightings and to to report to me. But based on your research and uh, the research of others outside of the United States, where would you say that the heaviest concentration of the pterosaurs are? Well, it's a little speculative, at least a little. But I'll give you <clears throat> an example. On the declaration page for living pterosaurs, if anybody knows how to spell pterosaurs, just let, let Google uh, pterosaur declaration, and you'll get to the flyingcreature.com page. It lists for a great deal of detail on, on where these sightings take place. Canada, for example, here's a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight sighting reports. Over how long a period, sir? Uh, let's see, this one was Edmondson, 2015, British Columbia, 2010, uh, Brampton, Kirchner, Ontario, 1960, Ontario in 2016, Ontario near Detroit, 2012, Quebec, 1998 or 1999, Saskatchewan, 1983, for the 
Canada. So we're looking at between 2010 and 2018. Yeah, well, yeah, there are okay. some in the 1990s, a couple in the 1990s, and one about 1960, okay. but uh, it varies a lot. So those are not all of the sightings, of course, in Canada. Those mm-hmm. are just some of the better ones that I've found, and they're basically... Uh, usually my own direct now, now, one question I have for you, sir. In a city like Brampton, that is right on the outskirts of metropolitan greater Toronto, how would only one person see this? What's, I'm sorry, what was the question? I said Brampton, the city of Brampton here in Ontario is yeah. part of the greater Toronto area or what we call the GTA. Yeah. Millions of people live in that area. How could only one person? Like bat wings, yeah. Long tail with a diamond shape at the the tip. Mm -hmm. So how come only one person would see it? Well, that's the thing. It's not one person. It could be a thousand persons or probably not good view. I should should clarify that. I don't think there would be a thousand um, good sightings where a thousand people got a good view of the animal, Mm -hmm. uh, especially not that, that particular day. What happens is these are generally nocturnal animals, and it's just rare that they come out in the daytime. And if it does, you might get uh, a, a, a select group of people are just lucky enough that they get a good view of it and they actually look at it. What, what happens is that among those people that see it, mm-hmm. uh, a portion of them will search online to find out what's going on. What was that that I saw? That right. It could be... A hundred, for example, a hundred in the Brampton area. They say is a guess, you know, just for example. A hundred people will look it up and say, oh, there is a people who do see these things. Oh, good. Then they forget about it and say, well, good, I'm not crazy for seeing something like that. And then there might be only one person that actually sends me an email. Okay. That's common. I can tell it's something like that because of the way that um, sighting reports get to me and how I know who else has seen something like that from the eyewitnesses who talk with me. How would the pterosaur have originally gotten over to North America? Well, I get that, that yeah, I get that reporting. We usually think of this kind of animals that it could exist if it's in a remote part of the world, like um, like a remote island, yeah. like Humboldt Island, for example. And that's what I originally was thinking, too, when mm-hmm. I was starting investigating. And my associates... Garth Gessman, David Wetzel, uh, two other Americans that followed me a few weeks after my expedition, they also explored Embo Island and had their own interviews and so on and searches. Anyway, uh, yeah, we generally had this uh, idea that was common that, you know, we need to go to this remote jungle island you right. know, and just search there until we find a living terrace. Or, well, as soon as we got back and I started publishing web pages on these things, I get all kinds of sighting reports coming to me, people that have seen them, not necessarily recently. Some of them are just, I saw one yesterday or I saw one last week. But some of them go back decades even, or a few years or even you know, decades, and tell me the reports that they've seen in the United States. Uh, what it is, is they didn't just arrive. We have historical records that go back in the Ohio River area of the uh, Piasaw bird, which is probably a pterosaur and how it attacked people and so on. We have some reports, South America, this big bird, bat, the big bat of uh, Venezuela, and um, killing people, and so they had them, people had to get out there and kill the animal. Anyway, but it, going back in history, we keep seeing these things all over the world, so I don't think they ever, they ever migrated here from some jungle somewhere. They've just always been here. 
Um, how come mainstream media would not carry this story? Like if somebody in Brampton, Ontario contacts a website about seeing this flying reptile, why would they not call the local media to see if anybody else had or make a report of it? People call the local media for UFO sightings. Why wouldn't they do the same for a flying reptile? Yeah, well, it's they do. In fact, people do contact newspapers, and sometimes a person will contact a, a university or... A, some people can't be called the police. It just doesn't do any good. They don't get anywhere that way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a person will contact a forest ranger type of uh, type of uh, professional, that kind of thing. It doesn't get anywhere there either. Um, it's just that there's the only people that can really listen, open the open mind, are cryptozoologists who specialize in this narrow field of cryptozoology. And so we have a new, we have a couple of newspapers in North Carolina just. Uh, few weeks ago that put articles out about sightings that were, seemed to be uh, going on in North Carolina, particular Raleigh, and then we got those two newspapers that published something on it. So what do we know about the pterosaur? What do we know about its habits? Uh, what do we know about... Well, what do we know? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it gets a little complicated, and uh, I have to tell you the truth, though, even though it's, it, it can... Uh, cause some people to be put off, but mm-hmm. there's more than one species, and this is you know, we have to take it in perspective. Generally, if you have a particular kind of kind of animal on the earth, generally it's not found in one species that has no relatives. Generally, it's one particular type of a general order of a type of animal, and it's the same with the eyewitness reports we get. Apparently, there's two major types: a long-tailed and a short-tailed, and um, it's hard to say sometimes when somebody sees one, they're so shocked mm-hmm. that they might not look at the tail. So some of these reports, I don't know if it's, a, if it's the one type or the other. It just seems to be a pterosaur, the person is so shocked. So it's difficult. They're generally, they are nocturnal, though, and they're not commonplace. Obviously, we would have them discovered long ago if they're commonplace. We would capture them by now. But they're not commonplace. They're not necessarily very rare, but especially the larger ones, there, there are enough of them that they can be a danger to humans sometimes. They can be dangerous, especially in certain places like a certain area of British Columbia. Sure. They can be dangerous, apparently, to people. But um, generally, they're not. You know, I, I, I found, uh, my producer found online for me the report from Brampton, Ontario, going back to November the 1st, 2004, at uh, 8 p.m. in the evening. And I'm looking at this saying, could be a misidentification of a hawk or a large bird of prey because it had, this is a quote from the report. The main, uh, the main witness watched astonished as he thought that it looked like a miniature pterodactyl. It had a wingspan span of about four feet. It was gray in color and did not appear to have any feathers. How often well, are these misidentifications? Well, I'll tell you what I do. See, I'm, I try to approach this scientifically, and, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what happens. Um, each sighting, I, I, if you ever look up the phrase apparent pterosaur, A-double-P-A-R-N-T, pterosaur, you'll find the, the, the search results will have my web pages dominating over anything else, mm-hmm. on the first page of Google, second page of Google, because they recognize that when you're dealing with one sighting, there is a possibility that there is a misidentification or something like that. 
as a possibility. What I, I deal with is the overall case where it's practically impossible for all of these to be misidentifications. For example, this particular one, Brampton, you said it was what size? It was kind of a... Had a wingspan of four feet. Four feet, yeah. Well, let's look right here, okay? I have here a list of, uh, of the wingspan estimates. Of course, these are estimates, which mm -hmm. can be off, of course. They're just human estimates. Um, but I see four examples of four feet, four examples of five feet, four examples of six yeah. feet, two from seven feet. This is a common reporting. Uh, this is a total of, I think, 74 uh, uh, reports that have an estimated wingspan. All right, listen, we've got to take our final break, uh, Jonathan. Please stand by. When we come back, let's talk more about this. Exonation Jonathan Whitcomb is our special guest, and we're talking about pterosaurs this hour, flying reptiles, also known in earlier days as dragons. If you'd like to find out more information about Jonathan, visit his website, www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. This is The X-Zone. I am Rob McConnell, and Jonathan and I will be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in The X-Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Jonathan Whitcomb is my guest. His website is www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. He is an American writer and cryptozoologist. Uh, before we went to the break, uh, Jonathan, you were giving me some indication about the sizes of the wingspans of the of, of alleged sightings of pterosaurs. So please continue. Yeah, it's, um, so I'll tell you where this comes from. Okay. Uh, these are 74, let me double-check that, mm -hmm. 74 out of 128 uh, citing reports that I felt were more credible and should have been analyzed, and I did analyze them at the at the end of 2012 and early in 2013. I published my findings and so on. But these 74 uh, eyewitness uh, wingspan estimates range anywhere from less than two feet mm -hmm. up to 46 feet. Wow! The interesting thing I found was <clears throat> was this is it's a very continuous, even grading all the way up here. In other words. If there were uh, a significant number of, for example, misidentification of birds, you would have some kind of bump in the statistics for bird sizes. There's nothing like that. All right, but it's isn't, it, isn't, totally it, isn't it true that the California condor has a wingspan of nine feet, and then we go down to eagles, they have a, a wingspan up to seven and a half feet, buzzards, yeah. four and a half feet, uh, hawks, four and a half feet you know so we go down the the list and to me this kind of puts the misidentification possibility number a lot higher than the credible sightings well you have to remember that when you're you, when you're dealing with them there's two things you're dealing with you the, the overall data of course which I'd, I'd like to talk about more but also the individual descriptions which have a featherless appearance mm -hmm. For example, no primary feathers is one thing I get sometimes. No primary feathers, featherless appearance. It flies differently than the birds. Some of the people I witnessed actually know the common birds of their area. They know what the, um, 
hawks and eagles and blue, blue herons and so on look like. I agree, you know, but if there's a bird in the area that they're unaware of, a misidentification could happen. Well, you'd have to look at the individual sighting report and see that probability. But generally, when you look at the statistics, it's not just uh, eagle sizes. See, for example, you have four, nine feet, four, ten feet, one, ten and a half feet, two, eleven, two, twelve, two, there's here, twelve and a half, thirteen, 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 fifteen, sixteen, sixteen, seventeen, 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 eighteen, twenty, 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 twenty. But my, 20 quest, half, my question, serious at this point, hearing all these statistics, how did the person making the report, how were they able to properly estimate the size of the wingspan? Were they using binoculars in order to say, well, the, 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 um, the object did not have any feathers? Like, there's, a, there's so many variables here. Well, we need to go to individual reports to get... <clears throat> to, to that, for example, a sighting mm -hmm. in a few years ago in Lakewood, California, um, not too far from where I lived at the time. I, I live in Utah now. But, uh, much more life in California. This, this sighting, when the eyewitness went out and looked at it, it was the middle of the day, no obstruction to her view. Mm -hmm. um, the, the distance from the animal's t end of the tail to her nose was just like, just a, uh, I don't know, it was just, just a matter of feet. It was just very close, a few feet away, and she got a very good look at it. And by the way, about about wingspans, though, we have to remember that 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 kind of guess is not helped too much by um, by binoculars because what you need is a reference, and mm -hmm. that's the problem. When people are estimating, sometimes it's when the the bird is flying in the air. Those estimates can be more off than the ones where they're flying close. So, for example, in uh, uh, near the University of Irvine uh, in California, uh, California State University, Irvine. That sighting a few years ago, the creature flew just low over the road, Campus Drive, and the, there's a long tail, and the eyewitness saw that the creature's length from the end of the beak to the end of the tail was pretty close to the same thing as the width of the, of the road. It was right in front of him. I went over and I walked it off myself. I paced it off. It's 30 feet. So this not a 30-foot-long um, uh, eagle with right. a, a long tail and no feathers. And what time of what time of day was that sighting, sir? That one, it was in the daytime. It was in clear daylight. It was not uh, not anything. Wow. Well, I don't remember the time, but I'm sure it was day daytime. Is that a populated part of uh, of California where the sighting took place? Well, some of it is. That particular exact location is, is between a, a marshy area that's fenced off mm -hmm. on one side and then a, um, a nature reserve on the other, where occasionally you do have people walking through there. But, um, again, it's a difficult. The person that reported that, I have to say, he's a professional. I can't say exactly what he is because of uh, privacy reasons. He doesn't want anybody to know who he is, but he's either a a medical doctor, a policeman, or a lawyer, one of those three. And he reported this to me under strictest confidence that uh, his name would not get out because it does look absolutely crazy that anything like this could possibly be alive. So how do we know it is alive? Well, there's different people in different parts of the world just describe similar things. Um, for example, 
um, the couple in Perth, Australia, that was mm-hmm. also very large. The, the man was uh, has he worked in the scientific field at the time. He, he estimated that the wingspan is between 30 feet and 50 feet. Right. And he was his his natural instinct for trying to estimate was more for 50 feet. But he's trying to find some way to make it 30 feet because it's just so incredible. His his wife were just shocked, and uh, she was ridiculed when she publicized and tried to get people to know about this. Anything that large, if it's alive, can easily kill people. And we have reports of people being attacked in British Columbia, Papua New Guinea, um, Africa. Uh, it does happen. Now, these are the bigger ones are not as common. But what happens is, if you have a small one, people don't pay attention. They don't even look at it. I think it's a bird. They don't even turn their head. Um, and so, the, the the smaller ones are more common, but they're just not not reported so much. So, someone was attacked in British Columbia by one of these flying uh, dragons. Well, more than once. Yeah. Really? I, I'll tell you the the source for that, and they get more information about that. These, uh, I've, I've published quite a few books. Four of them are now available now, but this particular book was written by Bird from Hell. I have the second edition. Mm. This is about those uh, big pterodactyl attacks uh, in uh, British Columbia. It's by Gerald McIsaac, and he reports uh, the um, local people there, the, I don't know what you call them, the people, you know, originally the natives uh, of that area in, in the upper northern British Columbia. I see. They, uh, they have legends of these. They, they just say, don't go out at night, and they just tell everybody, don't go out at night, whatever you do. Oh, I see. So this is nothing This is nothing that is recent, then. Oh, it's, 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 it's going on recently, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it was a few years ago we had a, mm-hmm. a girl that, uh, she wasn't, at that particular time, she wasn't attacked, but she encountered one of these things uh, accidentally and mm. she was running and like trying to scare off the boys that she thought were teasing her and, and she encountered this thing at night and was yelling you know and making noise and and it scared the creature and it let off this kind of a vapor she called it a smoke a vapor out of its mouth and then flew away and um i think this could be related to some of the dragon legends we have i, I have other reports of this kind of thing a kind of a mist or a vapor that's Admitted, it can be used for self-defense, but it also can be used possibly for subduing prey. I think that's part of where we get the idea of, of fire-breathing dragons is from that smoke-like substance that they emit from their, their mouths. Jonathan, how can people find out more about you? Well, it's, it's hard to miss me if you search um, online. I've written over a thousand web pages and blog posts. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other I can't keep them all up because there's just too many for me to keep updating. And when I first started writing them, I was not very professional. So, are all of these blog sites uh, on on the uh, Terrasaurs? Uh, mo- almost all of my websites are on Terrasaurs. Anything you find that, that, uh, that's about that's from me is mm-hmm. probably about living Terrasaurs. Yeah. We, uh, my producer, did a fast uh, search on all the. All the media outlets that we have access to, and we could not find one report from a credible media outlet on anyone being attacked by a pterosaur or a flying dragon in Canada. There are a few blog spots that mention it, but when it comes to credible media sources, not one. 
Yeah, and we had that. That's mentioned by the author Gerald McIsaac that that basically most people don't take the report seriously. They think that somehow some fanatic uh, criminal for mm-hmm. many years has been kidnapping people as they're walking at night along this this, uh, this particular road in in their area, and they just assume it's just somebody for. But it's been going on wow. for over a decade. People disappearing. And, all right, I want to thank you, Jonathan, for joining us tonight. And Exxon Nation, my guest this hour has been uh, Jonathan Whitcomb. You know, UFOs, no proof. Ghosts, no proof. Bigfoot, no proof. Loch Ness Monster and Lake Monsters, no proof. Fairies, no proof. Now we have dragons. With all the different people around the world who are out there, investigating one of these aspects of the paranormal, not to come across another aspect that is being investigated by other members of society. Well, you do the math. It just does not make any sense at all. This is Reality Radio, where we take a real look into the impossible, the the, the imaginable, the world of fantasy, and try to bring people back down to earth by asking hard-hitting questions. A lot of publishers don't like us, but you know what? Too bad. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. <laughs> 